Pineapple Pizza Podcast discusses the histories, cultures, and beliefs of regions around the world. These stories often contain mature and sometimes disturbing content that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Pineapple Pizza Podcast, where we serve up delicious slices of mythology, cryptozoology, and urban legends. It's an interesting combination of flavors. Weird, but it works. I'm your hostess, Emily, and today you may have noticed we'll be serving up something a little different. The restaurant will be closed in August for some minor renovations. In the meantime, we're dishing out some classic slices of collaborative flavor from our other shows. In this crossover between Studying Scarlet Podcast and Drink Drunk Dead, Ashley and I discuss some disturbing occurrences in Germany. The first bite is the little-known tale of the exorcism of Gottlieb Benditis, an unfortunate young woman who was relatively unliked by her village. But life for poor Gottlieb went from pretty sucky to downright awful when strange things began to happen and her local priest came to the conclusion that she must be possessed. A wild possession, impossible knowledge, and an agonizingly long exorcism makes this a devilishly good dish. For the final course, Ashley shares the heartbreaking story of the girl in the box. Ten-year-old Ursula Herman went missing on September 15, 1981, while riding her bike home. Events that followed were stranger than fiction. A delayed ransom note, bizarre phone calls, and a discovery that only brought more questions than answers. Who could do this, and for what purpose? Ashley explores the many strange twists and turns of the case and leaves both hosts feeling there are still many more layers to this story. We hope you enjoy today's Germany-inspired meal. The world is a confusing, stressful, and often frightening place. And we each have our own unique coping mechanisms that help us get by. Some people will tell you that when life gives you lemons, you should make lemonade. No, that's terrible advice. Just randomly getting free fruit is extremely suspicious. Haven't you heard of Snow White? That's actually uh, a really good point. It's usually not a great idea to consume anything if you're not totally sure what's in it. If you're the type of person who copes with discomfort by making strange jokes and who enjoys losing yourself in a creepy and sometimes bloody mystery, please join us for our dark comedy podcast, Studying Scarlet. We alternate weekly between true crime and fictional crime, and we even take listener requests for episode topics. So if you too have a morbid sense of humor, we'd love to welcome you into our weird, quirky, and sometimes disturbing world. Studying Scarlet is available on your favorite podcast app, and you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We can't wait to meet you. Please subscribe today. We're going to do some adjusting here because I'm on the world's most uncomfortable chair. (laughs) It sucks. (laughs) Like the back sits like this, but the bottom of the chair is like this. So your ass slides down in between it and it's terrible. There's like a divot. It's horrible. Who designed this? (laughs) Nobody bends like that. (laughs) An alien. An alien designed it. Beam me up, guys. I have a word for you right now. (laughs) I'm going to go Karen on your ass. Hi, I'm Emily. 
And I'm Ashley. And you're listening to Drink Drunk, Drunk. Dead. <laughs> I have a guest with me tonight. I have Ashley from Studying Scarlet Podcast, which is one of my favorites. Thank you for joining me tonight. Oh my gosh. Thank you for having me. I love your show as well, as you already know, because I gush to you all the time. So I'm excited <laughs> to be here. This is just our little podcast community going, nerding out on each other. And it's amazing. It's like the most wholesome nerding that's ever happened. It is with all the psych memes. It is. <laughs> and the psych gifts. It's perfect. It is. So this week we are doing a fun little crossover. I think we'll upload this as a special probably for both of our podcasts. Yeah. And it's going to be, I'm going to bring you the usual paranormal and she has some true crime for us today. Yes, I do. And we decided to pick kind of a general theme, so we went with Germany this week. Which is exciting for me, because like we did a case that kind of started in Germany, but then moved to Chile. So this is like my first time doing a crime that's actually really German the whole way from start to finish. Was that the Nazi pedophile who forked himself in the eye? It sure was. Was that, was that episode one? No. Which episode was that? So that was episode 14 of the true crime ones, and it's oh. called He Forked Out His Own Eye was because it really? he did. That's so funny. <laughs> I loved that episode. That was hysterical. How do you fork yourself in the eye? Untying uh, your shoelaces. Apparently you do, though, because it happened to this guy. I've never done it. I've never needed a fork to unknot my shoes. Didn't you say that you went on YouTube and there are apparently a couple videos about how to untie your shoelaces with a freaking fork? There are, no lie, there are at least two different YouTube videos that exist that are supposedly there to give you a tutorial on how to unknot your shoes with a fork, which, guys... I don't recommend it. I don't care what is in the YouTube video. If you like having two eyes, probably don't do that. Probably what, don't do that. What inspires people to come up with this stuff? I have no idea. Do you idea. think they read his story and they went, you know what? That's actually a pretty good idea. I want to try that. I really hope not because if they like his ideas and copy him, I'm really worried about everything else they're going to decide <laughs> to do because it's not going to be good. Well, I mean, there was that whole TV show, Jackass, where people just copy the dumbass shit that they see on TV, so. You know, fun fact, I actually read an article about all the injuries Johnny Knoxville sustained from Jackass, and it was really horrifying and worse <laughs> than a lot of the crimes that I've had to read about. The things that that man has done to his body are not on good. On purpose. Oh, no, definitely on purpose and for entertainment purposes. Mm -hmm. Not worth it, guys. Don't do it. That's so funny. He has a lot more money than me, but also probably some serious organ problems that I don't have. steve not much better. Probably not. I haven't read it. Like The part that got to me was apparently he, like, pissed blood for a while. Johnny Knoxville? Yeah. Uh, that's not surprising, some of the stuff that they did. <laughs> and I was like, if that happened and your immediate thought wasn't, I need to stop doing this, I'm not really sure what to think about your thinking processes. I think he, he just thought, well, hey, you know what? I'm having a good time doing it, so I'll just keep at it. It's a shame because he's actually a 
fairly decent actor in like some of the things I've seen him in that are legit acting gigs and mm-hmm. not just injure yourself for my entertainment. Well, I found a fun fact for you this week. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. Because this is actually take two of this, and I didn't have a fun fact for you last time. So this one, it's about Germany. I'm on theme today. Perfect. Germany and crime. (laughs) You've probably heard this before, but in Germany, there's no punishment for a prisoner who tries to escape from jail because it's considered a basic human instinct to be free. I actually did not know that, but I fucking love it. Isn't that awesome? (laughs) That's the most amazing thing I've ever heard. Think about like Ted Bundy, though. How many times he escaped from prison and they'd be like, it's okay. He just wants to be free. Be free. (laughs) Well, since we're on like a foreign country fun facts about their law, did you know that in France there is no such crime as perjury? If you are um, on the stand in your own defense, you can lie your ass off and it's not a problem. How does that work? Because you are expected to defend yourself by whatever means necessary. But then how on earth can anybody judge what they're hearing? I have no idea. I guess they need, like, actual evidence to bring Actual evidence? Yeah. Yeah. Because you're allowed to lie as much as you want. And even if you admit it, as soon as you leave the court, you're not getting in trouble. That makes me think of, have you ever seen the movie The Labyrinth? The 80s movie The Labyrinth? Uh, I'm obsessed with it because David Bowie was in really tight pants. <laughs> Do you remember the two door knockers? One that could only tell the truth and one that could only tell lies? Yes. That's what it makes me think of. Like, how do you know <laughs> if they're telling the truth or they're lying? I don't know. I guess uh, you just have to, maybe you just, well, no, I guess you can't just assume that they're lying because if they are innocent, then they're also going to tell you that they didn't do it. I guess it really would just have to boil down to the state having to prove their case with, you know, other physical evidence to show that your story is not true because you can lie as much as you want. It doesn't matter. It seems like that would be a pain in the butt for the state. But at the same time, that's really kind of their burden anyway. It is. And it probably should be. As much as I hate to say it, like, and I do believe that guilty people get away with stuff all the time because they're not able to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. But at the same time, when you think about the fact that the number of people who have been executed for crimes they didn't commit is a non-zero number. Mm Mm-hmm it kind of uh, reworks your thinking, especially then when you tie in um, that that burden of proof immediately becomes flipped. If you get convicted and you didn't do it, you now have this like massive uphill climb to try to prove that you're innocent because just coming forward with a a few pieces of new evidence isn't enough. You have to actually have like DNA or something like very concrete or to be able to prove that your trial wasn't fair. Yeah, it is exceptionally hard. That's why the Equal Justice Initiative is so important. Exactly. What they so do. This is a great, great time to bring that up. <laughs> it's all segueing so naturally. <laughs> what are you drinking tonight? I am very classy with my water tonight. I have Red Bull because I have been awake a very long time, but I also have spring water because I like to hydrate. <laughs> you have a not-so-secret addiction to Red Bull, do you not? 
That's extremely true. Uh, we've talked about it a couple different times on the podcast, so anyone who <laughs> listens to that already knows. And also, sometimes I tweet about it. <laughs> <laughs> How many do you go through a day? On an average, like, work day, probably four. Oh, my God. That's so much caffeine. <laughs> It's, I mean, I have the smallest cans because if I get the bigger ones, I tend to waste them. So how much caffeine is in this? Up 80 milligrams. So that's really not terrible. No, I think coffee's like 200 milligrams. I'm pretty sure that's about right for like the average cup of coffee. So it's not, it's not the worst thing in the world. That's not so bad. It's all the other crap that's in it that's not good for you. Mm -hmm. All that sugar and whatnot. Most people don't mind a little extra sugar, though. A lot of people put a lot of sugar in their coffee anyway, or they get, like, all those, um, like, flavored syrups in them, and that all has sugar in it, too. Mm -hmm. So I feel like it evens out in the grand scheme of things, hopefully, for my liver. So I guess hearing 80 milligrams is really not so bad. Yeah, I was, I was a little flabbergasted at, at four cans a day. I was thinking, holy crap, one of those makes me shake. <laughs> like a well, scared chihuahua. If I if I don't have food in my stomach, it will still make me shake because it's just like that much sugar and caffeine that hits your blood all at once will make you uh yeah, exactly twitchy like a chihuahua <laughs> for for a while actually if you don't uh soak it up with anything. So we've had our drinks. We're definitely not getting drunk tonight. Cause we can't. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think it's time? I think it is. All right. So for my story, the paranormal story, I went with the exorcism of Gottlieben Dittis, <laughs> who nobody has ever heard of before, but there's a reason for that. My sources were Mysterious Universe, Wikipedia, and The Awakening, which was based on three chapters from a 19th century book that it was a biography of a pastor that was published by another pastor. In 1840, there was a family of five, 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 five. five siblings that moved into a ground floor on an apartment house in a rural German village of Motlingen. I'm going to butcher every German name. I am German. I don't speak German. It's okay. Neither do I. And <laughs> I cannot pronounce the towns in mine either. So yeah. <laughs> just do the best you can. The so my main character, my main character, the focus of my <laughs> the focus of my research, Gottlieb, and she really got like the short end of the stick when it comes to the naming, because she had two elder brothers, Andreas and Hans, and then there were the three younger sisters, Katerina, Anna Maria, and then poor Gottlieb. It's like they used all the German for her name. It sounds like she her mom sneezed during birth. <laughs> yeah i can totally imagine that right now that might be what happened and they already wrote it down on yep. the birth certificate and it was too late to change it <laughs> totally i'm just like well shit i guess we're stuck with it that's your name now honey sorry <laughs> <laughs> no wonder godly had some troubles growing up so to put their ages into perspective when they move in Gottlieben, who was the youngest, was born in 1815. So at this point, she's 25 when they move into this apartment together, and it's just the five siblings. 
both of their parents had died uh, when the siblings were really young, so they had all just relied pretty heavily on each other. Gottlieb had a bunch of struggles, though. She was kind of malformed. She had one leg that was shorter than the other, and she suffered from a whole bunch of strange illnesses throughout her life that prevented her from working regularly, which made it really hard for her. She was definitely a burden on the family. Oh, man, that sucks. Yeah, especially in, like, 1840. If you're a burden... You would feel terrible because you would be completely aware that you're a burden, too. There's, Mm -hmm. like, nothing to cushion the blow back in the day to make you feel better. Well, and what was, like, the most common thing to do to women who were a burden in the 1800s? Put them in a nut house, usually. Uh Uh-huh. She never wound up there, though. Put (laughs) Put them in a nut house. They never did that to her, thankfully. Which means that they definitely loved their sister, which, you know, that says a lot about how much they cared about each other, which is really touching. Based on what what happens over the next few years of her life, I would definitely assume that it was a really tight-knit family because they did a lot to try and help her out. They didn't just leave her SOL. They fought for her to get the help that she needed. So she's all malformed. People thought that she had brought these afflictions on herself because she'd been practicing some kind of magic which I guess was pretty common in those rural villages, especially back in the day. And that was uh, the, Those were the villages surrounding the Black Forest, so I guess that was not an unusual thing. Part of the heritage. Possibly still. I don't know. <laughs> well, you think about a lot of those small towns are pretty insular, yeah. and they've handed down traditions throughout the years. It would not be surprising if some of them still held some of that. No, if they, if you're sheltered enough, you're not going to have as much contact with other modes of thought. So it's possible, mm-hmm. depending on how rural rural is in this case, that they might still have some of that superstition hanging on. Have you ever played the Fable games? No. No? I don't know what that is. Oh, it's uh, an Xbox game, and it it's kind of like a Skyrim or a Zelda where it's an open world. Okay. And it just, every time I picture her tiny little rural village, I picture the villages inside a fable. Somebody's going to get it. (laughs) I'm sure somebody's somebody's (laughs) nodding and laughing right now. Like, yes, (laughs) I understand. There's like four houses and somebody sawing a whole shit ton of wood and that's it. (laughs) (laughs) uh, That's where Gottlieb lived. It probably was. There were some farm animals maybe hanging out. I could see that. So she's already not liked. They they suspect her of some kind of witchcraft, of sorcery or something. But to make things even worse, she's pretty shy. And she w- did not come out of her shell very easily. She was pretty defensive and unpleasant. And people did not like her. Which certainly made things harder when she started to have some issues. So although she's su- suspected of practicing magic... She and her family regularly attended the local Lutheran church, which had recently welcomed a new very fire and brimstone pastor named Johann Christoph Blumhardt. And Blumhardt is actually the person that um, was, bi- how do I say it, biographed? That ain't the word I'm looking for. <laughs> <laughs> From the other pastor. That's who the book was about, the biography. <laughs> <laughs> but. I like it. No, biographed. It's a thing now. Uh, it's been a long day. We're going with biographed. <laughs> I like it. I'm sold. Shakespeare did this all the time. You just make up a new word. Right, right. 
So shortly after moving into their new apartment, the whole family and even the neighbors started to notice that there were some really strange things happening. There would be these strange bangs, shuffling sounds, and Gottlieben would see visions and feel things manipulating her. What, what's really gross is that her breasts would bleed. Oh, my God. Yeah. And she even lost consciousness once while saying grace at dinner. So this definitely made people really suspicious of her possibly practicing dark arts. Yeah, because, you know, you're not allowed to pretend to be religious if you're actually like some kind of witch. That's mm-hmm. not that's not going to be acceptable. Right. And if you're bleeding from the boobs, I mean, that's definitely a sign of the demon right there. I think that's possibly the most horrifying part of like the early stages of this story because I don't want I don't want my boobs to just randomly start bleeding. Right. I don't know about you, but holy shit. What kind of condition causes that? I have never heard of boobs just bleeding. That's awful. Not randomly. <laughs> honestly, I don't really want to dig into it any further. It's, we'll just say that that was a symptom. That was an early symptom, and we'll leave it at that. <laughs> I'm good with that. Yeah. <laughs> Since no one really liked her, or the rest of the family for that matter, the community pretty much ignored what was happening to her. They were just like, you're on your own. Finally, in the fall of 1841, this is nearly two years into the the strange things that were happening and the torments, the family finally went to Pastor Bloomhart for advice because they hadn't, Bloomhart didn't like them. He hadn't wanted anything that he knew what was going on, but he didn't even offer his help. Good pastor, right? That's bullshit. The banging in the walls had gotten so bad and they would happen all night long that it kept the entire neighborhood up. I can only imagine that their neighbors were really pissed. Yeah, and probably really hostile, but like... Oh, yeah. I feel like why wouldn't you want to try to do anything about it, maybe? Ignoring it's not helping. If you hear banging in the walls, you're going to think that somebody's intentionally doing it. Especially that Someone's getting beaten. Yeah. Making things worse, Gottlieben had started to be visited by visions of a deceased woman who died two years earlier. And the woman was holding a child in her arms. The spirit would repeatedly say, I just want to rest. Give me a paper and I won't come again. And of course, everybody's like, what the fuck do you, what do you mean by a paper? Seriously, that can mean like so many different things. Do you need a map? Am I writing something specific? We don't have phone numbers yet. You don't need to call anybody. Bloomhard's account says that he'd asked a woman to stay the night with Gottlieb and to comfort her. But when the woman was there, both she and Gottlieben saw this glimmer of light that led them to a board over the bedroom door. And so, being curious, they went and they pulled the board down, and behind it, they found several pieces of paper with indecipherable writing, and then they found three coins. And when they found that, the spirit left, at least for a while. That's wild. So, they, I guess they assumed that that must have been the paper that she was looking for. I mean, that's probably what I would be thinking. I mean, that's what she seemed to lead them to, so. If it was her. It was a glimmer of light. They don't know what it was. That, uh, that's true. I shouldn't, I shouldn't simplify. <laughs> you never know when it's the paranormal. It could be anything. Well, there were also coins in there, and she didn't mention anything about any coins. I was going to say there's nothing to spend money on in the afterlife, but what do you need the paper for either? Especially if it's indecipherable. It's not like you're getting a message to anybody. 
Well, the only thing that the coins make me think of is like that whole thing where you need to have money to pay the toll, like to get into the underworld. Mm -hmm. So that's the only thing that pops into my mind with that. But then what's the indecipherable writing? That is so funny because that topic just came up when I did the crossover the other night with uh, Lindsay and Maddie from Ye Old Crime because I did. Look at that. I was talking about the Heaven's Gate cult. Okay. And they, they had bags with money next to their bodies and we were speculating whether that had something to do with crossing over yeah because that's why they used to put coins over the eyes of the dead so that they would have money to pay their toll it all ties together everything ties together that was unintentional i had no idea that was a good that was a good thought though (laughs) so they find the paper and the coins but that doesn't things don't stop the banging actually got worse and now people, including Boom, Boom Heart, Bloom, I didn't even type it right. That's why I can't read it right. <laughs> the, the dude that does the stuff came to the house and they witnessed it. They also witnessed things like furniture moving and sounds like fireworks from under her bed. Holy shit. Yeah. That definitely makes it hard to sleep. I would have a heart attack if, like, I were just laying in bed one night trying to sleep and then I had fucking fireworks under Uh my bed. Oh, hell no. No, I would be dead. I would be dead from fear. Oh, and I abbreviate – well, not abbreviate. I simplified some of the descriptions of what was going on because it was like she would be in bed and then the fireworks would go off and then she would just start bleeding and it was – Oh, my God. But there weren't actual fireworks and the bed would shake. I'm just, I'm bringing it down to like (laughs) bullet points of what was happening here. Under the advice of Bloomheart, Gottlieb had moved in with a cousin and she was gone from her village for more than a year. Although her house grew quiet, the strange occurrences followed her to her temporary home. And I think she actually bounced around. I think there were two cousins that she went to live with. And I I mean, I guess if, if you go to one and you have this stuff following you, And they don't want anything to do with it. They're kicking you out. So she'd fall into these violent convulsions sometimes that would last several hours in which her limbs would become really stiff and she'd foam at the mouth, which sounds like epilepsy. Although I don't know that epilepsy usually lasts several hours. Uh, I don't think I've ever heard of a fit lasting that long, but then Mm -hmm. at the same time, like, I don't know how often, like, epileptics are just allowed to convulse, like, unattended anymore, so Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, I guess maybe it's possible that it is. That's certainly what it sounds the most like to me. Well, and if they're checking the time on their sundial wristwatch might be a little more difficult to check. That's true. How are, they, the how are they measuring how long this is lasting, just like based on feelings? Probably by the position of the sun, I would imagine. I feel that this has lasted half a lifetime, so that is how long it has been. It's accurate. <laughs> I would say that's an accurate measurement. Sure, why not? So Bloomheart goes and he visits her at the cousin and he witnesses the convulsions. He also witnesses cursing and profanity and even speaking in other voices. And this is when he determines that this must be the result of demonic possession because what else could it be? Well, to be fair, he is a priest. He is a priest. So I feel like he's a little bit preconditioned to be like, okay, probably demons. I mean, 
what else is it going to be? Yeah. They're not going to go the science route because they don't really know that much science. So. Germany's really good at science, but I don't know about the priests. Well, they're good at science now. Germany do science good. They were doing science good back in the 1800s. I don't know anything about the 1800s in Germany. <laughs> I know Max Planck. Planck's constant. Okay. That's about I, as far as I go. That I've heard of that before. That's the most science I can bring to this. And I think Brownian motion. Something <laughs> like that. Something. I don't know. Science stuff. At some point, Gottlieb seemed to have something enter her. Oh, God. Bloomhart thought it might be the spirit of the woman that she had been seeing before. Because as Bloomhart spoke to her, the spirit and Gottlieb said that she'd murdered two children and buried them in a field. And when he pressed her whether she was the only spirit there, Gottlieb responded, no. The spirit that was possessing her claimed that it too was possessed by the most evil of all, which I guess must mean the devil. Because I don't know that you get much more evil than the devil. Probably not in the framework of anything that we would understand. So Lucifer it is. (laughs) Although Bloomheart seemed to exercise the spirit that night, Things only seemed to really get worse for her. That's when she began to do self-harm. She'd pull out her hair, smash her head against the wall, beat herself. She did all kinds of stuff. Uh, She would also... It looked like she was continually being attacked by these unseen forces. They'd trip her, hit her, burn her, leave these horrible marks all over her. There was one witness that said that it looked like... It looked like something had wrapped its hand. Hi, Emmett around her throat it looked like she was being choked and then when the whole thing ended she had these fingerprint burn marks around her neck that is legitimately horrifying i'm pretty sure epilepsy does not explain that one it definitely does not that would be slightly unusual never heard of an epileptic uh coming out of a fit with a burned hand on their yeah right (laughs) Maybe slightly unusual. There was one incident that was so bad, it left her frighteningly close to death, although they didn't go into detail about what that incident was. They're just like, it was really bad. She almost died. The end. Well, I mean, we can probably imagine that we don't really want to know because some of the things we do know are pretty terrifying, and they they described that still. They told us about the bleeding boobs. The bleeding boobs, the uh, burned hand on the throat, like the fireworks under the bed. Mm -hmm. But this thing, it's too bad to talk about. Mm -mm. No details. Just know that it was bad. It was bad, and the devil was probably there. So one day, Bloomheart ends up, he's called to her in the middle of this terrible storm, and he finds her in a pool of blood. Oh, my God. That would be fucking traumatizing. Uh, Extremely. (laughs) As he begins to pray earnestly for her, she cries out in many voices saying, with your unceasing praying, you will drive us out completely. Alas, alas, everything is lost. We are 1,067, but there are many others still alive and they ought to be warned. That's such like a random but very specific number. It is, right? <laughs> 1,067, not not plus or minus one, 1,067. 
what's the standard deviation on this? <laughs> I would love to know, spirits. Please tell us. What's your error margins here? Again, he thought he had exercised all the demons from her, but each time they would return. And most of them said that they were themselves possessed souls that were seeking refuge inside of poor Gottlieben. So this chick was really not having luck. She's it's, basically like a house party for demons at this know, point. Right? It's like the first one moved in and was like, hey guys, it's nice in here. Come on in. They like how one of her legs is shorter than the other leg. That's what it is. <laughs> That's like a demon amenity. <laughs> it makes it really hard for her to run away from you. It's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> That's fucked up. I'm sorry I said that. Oh, God, I'm sorry. I take that back. Can I reverse? (laughs) Just put it back in. (laughs) Oh, shit. So they spoke in many languages, French, Italian, German, and others that were unrecognizable to Bloomheart. I imagine one of them, at least one of them was Latin. It had to be. He might have recognized that. He's a pastor, a Lutheran pastor. Oh, no. You know what? Part of why... Lutheranism, Luther, Luther, yeah, we'll go with it. Moving on. Part of why it became a thing was because Martin Luther was tired of everything being in Latin. Yeah, because it was inaccessible to the mm-hmm. average uh, parishioner. So he would want it to be in the common tongue. So a Lutheran pastor might not speak Latin. He probably wouldn't, actually. So, yeah, I think we can probably assume, uh, based on every possession story I've ever heard, that there was some Latin in there. Yeah. It was in the mix. That is apparently the original evil language, is Latin. Well, I feel weird that I know some of it then. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I took it once and it was too long ago. I don't remember any of it. At one point, Gottlieben told him that many of the demons had left her to travel thousands of miles away and cause an earthquake. Nice. Everybody everybody needs a vacation. Weirdly specific information, though. News would later come to the village that, that there's really no reason that she should have had any kind of advanced knowledge of. And the news was that there was an earthquake in the West Indies. How bad it was, I don't know, but obviously it was bad enough to get back to Germany, so... I mean, it wasn't, like, super minor. They wouldn't have been talking about it all those miles away. So mm-hmm. had to be at least noteworthy. So people were like, well, damn, Gottlieben, you got some shit, real shit going on here. That's wild. She would lash out violently. So she she's kicking back into it. The demons moved back in. They were done with their vacay. She starts to lash out violently. She curses at people. And then she tried to take her own life. And she'd often have to be restrained. And so there were a couple times where there were reports of her trying to hang herself, trying to cut her wrists, oh going God. up to the top of a roof and trying to throw herself off of it. But it was like she would just get to the point of completing suicide. And it's like she would wake up and she would stop herself. Oh, my God. So she must have had some kind of really strong spirit to fight that and prevent prevent that from happening. That's crazy. There were reports that at times she would vomit nails, glass, sand, and blood. What the fuck? So, okay, blood. 
That's that happens. I've heard with nails, glass, and sand. Yeah, I can't. Okay, so maybe here's my thing. What if the sand turns into glass, and that's how those things are connected? I got nothing on the nails. She got the. She's got that superheated demon oven inside that turns the (laughs) sand into glass. One of the demons is a glass blower. Oh, you know what? Maybe. <laughs> Be like uh, that South Park episode where they eat through their butts and they puke out through their mouths, but this time she's puking out light bulbs. Oh, my God. <laughs> Fucking that. Oh, that. I don't even want to think about how bad that would hurt. Just like fucking why? Yes, why? Nails, Nails. guys? Nails. Nails. Like, what if it gets stuck on the way out? What the hell are you trying to build inside her? <laughs> that is a damn good question. Maybe. <gasps> Maybe. She's like the demon version or the evil version of Noah's Ark. She's an <laughs> Ark for the demons. And there are, she's under construction. <laughs> just, we're just... <laughs> swing and a miss with that one okay (laughs) no it's i like it a lot i'm just like couldn't you have picked a larger arc she seems (laughs) like such a small arc but they did if you can fit 1067 Mm -hmm. demons in a got even Mm -hmm. i guess that's big enough and they're seeking refuge man they're trying to get away it's a good place to be apparently it's very homey in there they're fortifying it so they can't get kicked out. Do you think her real estate listing says cozy? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it says cozy, um, deceptively spacious. <laughs> Has all the best amenities. <laughs> Does have a stumpy leg, though. You won't believe all this storage. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God, we're terrible people. I feel really bad now. <laughs> I'm sorry, Gottlieben. She, it ends well for Gottlieben. I'll give it away now. It ends well. On December 28th of 1843, so this is nearly four years of continual possession and two years of exorcisms, the final exorcism finally occurs. The spirits seemed to leave her really suddenly, and then they entered one of her brothers. I couldn't figure out which one because they never specifically said from what I could tell. And then it was like, no, nah, you know what? He's not that great. So it, I mean, it just like frog hopped from brother into her sister, Katerina. Her brother really quickly recovered, but Katerina raged and spoke in tongues and also tried to kill herself. The spirit that had entered her was not another human spirit turned demon. So like all the other ones that were possessed and trying to seek refuge. This time it seemed to be an angel of Satan, according to Bloomheart. As Bloomheart continued the exorcism, Katerina lets out this awful cry, just this blood-curdling, bone-wrenching cry that's so loud and prolonged that most of the village could hear it. It It lasted something like a quarter of an hour of just this horrible, nightmarish scream. And as she's flailing violently, her back arched and she wailed, Jesus is the victor. Jesus is the victor. And then she slowly grew quiet and calm and the evil seemed to leave the home. So that was the big like, that got got all the evil out. Unsurprisingly, 
Bloomheart became really freaking popular after this. He wrote a book about it called An Account of Gottlieb and Dittis' Illness. Following these events, the Bloomheart family and Gottlieb's family actually became very close and worked together often until his death in 1880. So he had not wanted anything to do with that family before this. But after that, they're all buddy-buddy. She even helped raise his kids. Well, you get really tight when you have to exercise someone's demons for two years. Yeah, I I mean, I guess. And you're around all the... You get to see them through the thick and the thin. (laughs) Legend says that words mysteriously appeared on the shutter of the Dittus home during the period of possession. So it was like somebody painted them on there. It said... Man, think on eternity and do not mock the time of grace, for judgment is not far off. Since then, the words have been inscribed on a plaque that still hang on the house, which still stands. You can go visit her house. As far as I can tell, until 2002, none of this information was ever available in English. It's really well known in Germany. And Bloomhart became kind of like this religious celebrity that's still, I guess he's widely known or fairly well known. But it's remained relatively unknown to the rest of the world until the release of the those three chapters from The Awakening. That's I read through those, but that wasn't released until like the last two decades. Yeah, had to be translated. Mm-hmm. From a rural village. Well, okay, so this happened in Germany, but the pastor who wrote about it was Swiss. That's even more complicated. Yeah. <laughs> it's like that, what's the telephone game or something? so that is the story of Gottlieb and Dittus's possession and exorcism well I'm really glad it worked out for everybody in the end yeah it was a happy ending actually except I guess if you're the demons then you've lost (laughs) gotta go find a new summer home I guess oh no that sucks (laughs) (laughs) must be tough to be a demon I mean probably but I I don't know I'd say we should ask them, but if you start talking to them, that's an invitation, and then <laughs> you really can't kick them out. Yeah, so let's let's not let's open not those do doors. that. Let's not do that. <laughs> do we need elevator music? Uh sure, we can do that. All right, it's time to make things uh, really depressing. This is the best way to close it out. (laughs) Well, my story doesn't have a happy ending, but it's still really interesting. So that's something. I vaguely remember it from last time. Too much has happened. I don't, I don't retain memories that long anymore. You've been, you've been super busy, and it's going to be better if you don't remember all of it because otherwise it'll be kind of boring to sit through (laughs) it. (laughs) Okay, so this is the story of Ursula Herman, also known as the girl in the box. So before we dive in, um, my two sources for this, the main one is The Girl in the Box, The Mysterious Crime That Shocked Germany by Zan Rice. Um, That's an article from The Guardian. And then um, I fact-checked a couple things in a smaller article called The Kidnappers Put Her in a Box. It had one fatal flaw. That's by Kate Siemens from Newser. So let's dive right in. It sounds like Leslie Nope wrote these titles. They're so long. They are extremely long, and they're not super fun ones. So, no. But it's, it's okay. I've learned how uh, some people 
some people think they need to give the whole story away up front when they write a title. Mm-hmm. Apparently, that's been happening a lot lately. <laughs> okay, so our story begins on Tuesday, September 5th, 1981. So a little bit more recent than your story, but <laughs> that's okay. It's still a while ago. So that was the first day of a new school year for 10-year-old Ursula Herman. After school was over, she returned home and practiced piano with her older brother, Michael, who she was fairly close with. And when they were done practicing, she had to um, ride her bike to her afternoon gymnastics lesson in Schondorf. Probably butchered that, going to be honest with you, but that's that's how I think you would say it. Um, So that was a neighboring village that was less than two miles away from the village Ursula actually lived in, which was called Esching Am Amersi. So it was very close by, but apparently it was very normal for her to just cover that distance on her bike. Two miles is not that far. It's really not. And even riding a bike, it doesn't take that long to go that distance. Mm -hmm. So I can imagine, like, nobody probably thought anything of it. So after her gymnastics lesson was over, she went over to her cousin's house, which was in that village in Schondorf, and ended up staying there for dinner. Um, Around 7.20 p.m., Ursula's mother called and said that she needed to come home now because it was starting to get late. So at this point, you know, there was enough sunlight left to be sure that she would have plenty of time to make the bike ride home, but her mom absolutely did not want it to go any later than it already had. Um, The bike ride apparently took her about 10 minutes to make on a normal day. So when it was 7.50 and Ursula still hadn't arrived home, her mother is starting to get upset, so she calls the cousin's house again and talks to the aunt um, and says, you know, why isn't Ursula home yet? And the aunt says Ursula left 25 minutes ago. And that's the panic point. Absolutely. Um, I mean, as soon as you hear that, you know she's had more than twice the amount of time it should have taken to get there alarm bells are probably going off. Well, and obviously she knew this very well to know that it's going to take 10 minutes. She does it all the time, riding back and forth. She can do it by herself. Yeah. So uh, they, they definitely immediately reacted to this. So Ursula's father goes out and takes the forest path along the lake, which is the road that Ursula would have taken the bike ride on. And he starts walking towards Shondor from their side. On the other side of the path, Ursula's uncle comes out and starts walking toward their village. So these two men are hurrying along, calling out for her as they walk. Neither one of them finds her, and they end up meeting in the middle, having found no sign of her, no bike, no nothing. So by 9 p.m., the search party has grown to include neighbors, firemen, and police officers, and they are all out there in the dark at this point, obviously, searching the woods and all around this lake with flashlights, desperately hoping that they're going to find this girl. That's fast that they got that much, that many people out. 
Sometimes having small communities is really helpful in an emergency mm-hmm. because everybody knows each other and everybody's ready to jump in for you. I kind of think that's what was going on here. As soon as they heard she was missing, they're out in abundance looking for her. So around midnight, a dog led a searcher to Ursula's red bike, which was found about 20 meters away from the bike path. So for those of us uh, who aren't very good at meters, like myself, that is a little over 65 and a half feet. Because, you know, in America, we can't just use the metric system like <laughs> everyone else. Got to make it all complicated. America. America. No meters here. We don't do that. <laughs> Unless you're a scientist. But not a biologist, right? <laughs> oh God, that's such an idiot. <laughs> i'm thinking that all the damn time i'm sorry i had that was the dumbest fucking comment everyone says like i have already figured out that if you're recorded for long enough you're gonna say lots of stupid shit and it's gonna haunt you forever yeah i think i said that in like our second episode yep (laughs) if that's all it takes start recording yourself you'll immediately say something dumb Uh uh-huh Okay, so unfortunately, all they find is the bike that night. They don't find any trace of her, and they eventually had to give up the search because not only was it getting increasingly dark outside, and it's a forest, so that means basically no light at all, it also started raining really heavily, so they had to abandon it until the next day. That had to be heartbreaking for her family. I'm sure. I mean, my guess is that they probably didn't sleep. And if they did, it was probably just from, like, exhaustion from crying, like, Mm -hmm. for a couple of hours. Because they restarted this thing at first light. So they didn't have too many hours from when they finally called it off to when they started again. So at first light, the search heats up again. Now we have dozens of officers spreading out throughout the forest. There is a helicopter searching from the air. And they even get a police boat and divers to search the lake. So clearly they thought there was like possibly a chance that she had fallen into the water and Mm -hmm. drowned. Which would be interesting considering her bike was the opposite direction, wasn't it? In the woods. Yeah, it was. So it's also a good place to dump a body. Yeah, I think they're basically like, what are all of the possibilities at this point? Because you can't really rule anything out when you can't find anything but a bike. Mm -hmm. So they were just being as thorough as they could at this point, honestly. Um, So at this point, the news had already picked up the story and was circulating the the following description of the girl. Um, She is 1.43 meters tall. Again, for us Americans, that's about four feet, seven inches. (laughs) um she was she had short blonde hair and was last seen wearing green cords a gray wool cardigan and reddish brown sandals so they were pretty specific on this um on the morning of thursday september 17th so at this point she was missing about a day and a half the hermans received a bizarre phone call From the other end of the line came the familiar sound of the lead-in music to the traffic bulletin from a local radio station. That is so weird. It is. It's unnerving. Why choose that? I don't know. I guess just because it was an easy sound to get a hold of. 
So they heard this jingle and then silence for a while. And then the jingle repeats a second time. And then the other line goes dead. That's creepy. It would be creepy even if you didn't have a child missing. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine, like, how much that would magnify it. But that's fucking horrifying. And if it's not enough that it happened once, over the next few hours, they received three additional calls that were identical to that. Oh, my God. They just wouldn't let up. It just kept happening over and over. So, of course, the cops have caught on to this by, like, the second call. So they're, they're starting to monitor the phone lines and they're recording every time this happens. Um, the following day, Friday the 18th, the Hermans receive a letter in the mail marked urgent. It was a ransom note that had instructions inside of it. They were told to pay 2 million Deutschmarks in ransom, So that, um, I'm not good with German money. I don't know about anybody else, but for people in the UK, apparently that's about 450,000 pounds. And then for us in US currency, that's about $175,826. So it seems like a random ass number to us, but 2 million for them. It's a nice round number for them. Yeah, just a nice round demand figure. So, uh, evidently, the kidnappers had miscalculated on one very crucial point. They thought the letter was going to be delivered on Wednesday, before the mysterious calls began. Freaking geniuses. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So, the letter's instructions actually stated that the Hermans would receive a phone call using that traffic jingle to identify the callers as the kidnappers. Upon hearing the jingle, the Hermans were supposed to say yes or no to indicate whether they intended to pay the ransom. It further stated that if they called the police or failed to pay the money, their daughter would be killed. Can you even imagine getting this fucking letter after After. you already got four phone calls and didn't know what to say because you didn't know what was happening? And now you're convinced that they've killed your kid. That's what I would be thinking. I'd be like, they gave me four chances already. Yeah. And I didn't know what to do. Fortunately, I guess if you want to look at it that way, the phone rang again that afternoon and they heard the telltale jingle again. This time, Ursula's mom, having gotten the goddamn instructions, knows what's happening and she says that they will pay the ransom, but then she asks for proof of life. Probably thinking exactly what you're thinking, Emily, that maybe they already killed her when they didn't answer the Mm -hmm. first day. So she specifically wants the kidnappers to tell her what Ursula's names were for her two favorite stuffed animals. Information they'd pretty much only be able to get from her if Mm -hmm. she's still alive. She gets no reply from the other end of the line. It's just the traffic jingle again and the calls disconnected. That is so fucking creepy. So by Thursday evening, the kidnappers mailed another letter with extremely specific instructions regarding the payment of the ransom. These instructions uh, arrived at the Herman House on Monday, September 21st. So these stated 
Okay, the first part's fairly normal. It stated that the money was to be paid in 100 Deutschmark notes packed into a suitcase. That part, I'm like, okay, I've probably heard something similar in most kidnapping stories where there's a ransom. Mm-hmm. But then it gets weird. So the suitcase is supposed to be delivered by Mr. Herman to an unnamed location. Like, they will not tell him where he's supposed to be going. Then how do you drop it off? I don't know. And then if that's not weird enough, they further expected him to drive a yellow Fiat 600 to do the ransom drop. And he was instructed to travel no faster than 90 kilometers an hour. How are you going to know? It's not freaking speed. You don't have a bomb strapped underneath. I don't fucking know. It's weird as hell. Like the Hermans definitely did not own a car that looked like that. Isn't the Fiat an Italian vehicle? Oh, it definitely is. I thought so. And in case you're wondering, uh, Fiat's, and especially yellow Fiat's, were not common at all. They were quite rare in Germany in 1981. They probably were rare everywhere in 1981. Who has a yellow car in 1981? I mean, maybe some Italians. I don't know who else. (laughs) So it's like they're making it incredibly difficult, if not almost impossible, for this to happen, and they don't give the location. So um, something else people might be wondering at this point is whether or not the Hermans were wealthy. Okay, because obviously they took a kid and now they're demanding this kind of money. What are the odds that they're going to be able to pay it? Well, it turns out they were not rich at all. So a neighbor managed to raise part of the ransom funds and the remainder of the $2 million was covered by the state. So the kidnappers must not have known the family very well if they're asking for $2 million and there's no way the family's going to have that. Well, I think that's one possibility. The other possibility, and I don't know like how common in this is for this to happen in Germany, but the other possibility is that they knew that the money would end up being covered by the government. Hmm. So I'm not sure like how common it was for them to do things like this, but they're certainly making it hard for them to be able to comply with the demands. So they mm-hmm. picked a not rich family. They want them to drive a car they don't have access to, to a place they don't know where it is. At a very specific speed. Exactly. That's so weird. So um, as it turns out, their ability to come up with the money was irrelevant because they never received any follow-up instructions to provide the drop-off location for the ransom. So they got no more letters, no more mysterious phone calls with a creepy traffic jingle, nothing. And the police had no leads. That poor family. I'm sure they were going through hell. Oh my god, I can only imagine after getting that phone call where you're saying, yes, I'll pay the ransom, and you hear nothing on the other end, that mother must have lost it. I'm sure she was probably a mess. The whole family probably was, but I'm sure for the mother and the father, it's probably the worst. So after two weeks of waiting to get these other instructions, they finally kind of give up on it. So they launch another large-scale search of the forest, and this one is organized with 100 officers and 10 uh, trained scent dogs to help search the area. 
they divided the search area into four sectors and then each sector is divided into like these little grids that they're supposed to search through systematically. Now, while they were doing that, they were also using these metal rods to probe into the top of the ground to see if anything's like under the dirt. Yeah, your face mm. uh, says that you do not like that. <laughs> I don't. I don't. What happens if you hit a rock and then have a heart attack? I don't know. I guess you dig and see if it's a rock. Uh, I don't like that. So on the fourth day of this search, at this point, that's 19 days that she's been missing. Most of the ground has already been covered, and you have to imagine at this point, Hope's probably starting to run out. Around 9.30 a.m., a loud shout signaled that something had been found. In a spot about 800 meters um, off of that path, that's close to half a mile for, again, for us who don't understand meters, um, one of these metal probes struck something solid in the dirt. Beneath a layer of leaves and clay, two officers uncovered a brown blanket and beneath that a wooden board. When they got that stuff pulled up and out of the way, the searchers found a green wooden box. It was 72 centimeters by 60 centimeters by 1.4 meters deep. This is not that big of a box. Um, for us, that's like 2.36 feet by 1.64 feet, so really freaking small. No kidding. And then it's only like about 4.6 feet deep. It's not big. I mean, she's 10, but still. It's really small for anybody, even a 10-year-old. So on top of this box is a series of these sliding bolts that are keeping the lid in place. So they manage to use a shovel to force this thing open. And once they get it open, unfortunately, inside they find the lifeless body of Ursula Herman. The officer who lifted her from the box was so overcome with emotion that he cried. You find a little girl buried in a box. In a freaking weird-ass box. In a forest. In a forest. So they do an autopsy on her to find out how long she's been dead. And they determine that she survived no more than five hours after being buried in there. So she was dead before that first phone call ever happened. If they buried her right away. Yeah. If they didn't keep her alive for a little bit. Well, I mean, that's something to think about. But based on the time of death, they think she was buried quite soon after she was taken. <sighs> that sucks. Yeah. So they, the family never had any prayer of getting her back, pretty much. Um, based on the lack of damage to the box's interior, investigators believe the girl had been heavily sedated when she was placed inside and the box was covered. Now, I, I, when I was reading all this for the first time, I was like, okay, why? Like, why did they even take her? Like, were they ever intending to get the ransom? Like, were they going to, to make a trade ever? Like, what happened here? Well, it turns out there's some evidence 
in the box to suggest that they might have meant to keep her in there alive. For one thing, um, there was like a shelf kind of inside this box that made a little seat, and that could function as a toilet. So she sat on a toilet for several hours, basically? I think it was, like, covered over with, like, a bench, but if you lifted it up, I think, yeah, pretty it's much. such tiny-ass little box. How are they fitting that in there? I have no idea. If that's not weird enough, there were also three bottles of water, 12 cans of Fanta, which, I'm sorry, why? <laughs> I just, I, I, okay, look, I don't like Fanta, I'm gonna be honest, but why 12 cans of Fanta? And three bottles of water. Exactly. Doesn't fucking make any sense. Who wants 12 cans of Fanta? Kids. I don't know. Well, maybe. <laughs> That's a good point. I don't remember being 10, so maybe. If they're trying to keep her kind of docile and chill down there. Although, it's in a fucking box. Unless there's a light, she can't see that. Well, hold on a second. So, she also had four packs of biscuits, some chewing gum, about six chocolate bars, which, again, why is there so much fucking candy and barely any food? And she also had 21 books, a light, so she would have been able to see. There was a little light in there. You fit 21 fucking books, but you only put in three bottles of water? And a 12-pack of feet. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> like, who put thought into this? You can't survive without water. That's just kind of a duh. Well, I don't know, but it's not a good plan. The other problem is they actually built a ventilation system into this box that was made of these plastic pipes, which investigators think they intended to give her enough oxygen to keep her alive inside the box until the ransom was paid. But they, again, made a crucial error because they didn't understand that if you don't have a machine to circulate the air, the oxygen in the box is just going to run out. You can't just stick a tube in there and that's it. Something has to circulate oxygen or you're done. Who the fuck were these idiots? I don't know, but they're they not They fucked us up on, like, every level. They're not good planners. So, um, investigators basically think, yeah, they probably did intend to keep her alive in there. Now, how long they knew that she was already dead, I can't answer that question. But I'm guessing the kidnappers must have figured it out at some point because they stopped communicating with anybody to get the money. So, based on the weight of that box, which you probably can imagine was pretty heavy with all that shit inside of it. 21 books. 21 books, some Fanta, a toilet, I don't know. So they basically were like, okay, this is heavy enough that it probably would have required at least two people to carry it. So based on that, they're like, okay, probably at least two kidnappers involved in this scheme. But other than that, and thinking that the perpetrators were probably familiar with the woods having picked a location and knowing that, like, kids would be riding that path, the police basically were like, okay, well, it's probably someone local-ish. But other than that, and thinking it's at least two people, I have nothing. It had to have been somebody that was planning to take a kid specifically, too. 
with the size of the box. With the yeah. size of the box. That's You're not fixing it at all there. Yeah. Absolutely. Not like they're making that right then. No, it had to have been done in advance and stuck into the ground. And they probably covered it with that board and blanket so that no one would bug it until they put her in there and covered it, I'm thinking. So the, the cops are desperate at this point. So they turn to the public and start offering a reward of 30,000 Deutschmarks for information that was like leads to a conviction in the case. Now, for us, that's about $17,000. But again, 30000 you know, of something is a pretty good amount of money. So they, they did manage to drudge up some tips using that reward. Um, one of the most promising tips they got was a possible suspect named Werner Masaryk, who was 31 years old at the time. And he lived quite close to the Hermans with his wife and his own children. So people were suspicious of him for a couple of reasons. Um, The biggest one is that he was known to have financial problems. Specifically, he owed the bank 140,000 Deutschmarks. So when you're that bad in debt, you know, you have a clear financial motive to attempt doing something that's designed to get you ransom money. So that made him look bad. The other thing is he was a trained mechanic and was known to be handy. So people were like, well, he could have made this box. So that's from everything that I read, the main two reasons that this guy was a suspect. So police start questioning him. So they start with, you know, fairly typical stuff like what were his whereabouts on September 15th? He initially said he did not remember where he'd been that evening. Now, some people might immediately be like, well, that's fishy, but it's been weeks mm-hmm. since she went missing at this point. I, if you're the Herman family and that's the day your daughter went missing, you sure as hell remember that day really clear. But if you're just like some random dude, you might not remember exactly what you did that day weeks mm-hmm. after So the next day he comes back and does give them an alibi. He says that he was playing a game of risk with his wife and a couple of friends. So they check that out. Obviously his wife, you know, vouched for him, but they still weren't satisfied. So they go ahead and search his home and his workshop. They turned up nothing incriminating. So they're like, okay, this is not going well. Not even half a box of Fanta? Not even half a box of Fanta. Not even some candy bars, nothing. So then forensic investigators find a fingerprint on a piece of duct tape inside the box. So police start gathering fingerprints from people from around the area, including Masaryk. They don't match. Now, that's not necessarily enough to clear him, though, because, again, the cops think at least two people were involved. So just because it's not his fingerprint doesn't mean it wasn't him. Mm -hmm. So they still don't clear him. The police actually ended up arresting him and two of his friends at the end of January 1982. On what freaking charges? They had no evidence that it was him. Basically... 
Yeah, basically they just had suspicion. So I guess they bring them in, like arrest them and bring them in. And kind of like they do here, they can hold them for a few days without actually charging them with anything. Because that, that's how it works here too. The deadline's probably a little bit different though, because it's a different country. So they hold these men, they interrogate them for several days, and eventually they have to release them. Because you're right, they don't have anything but suspicion and rumors, pretty much. And this is why the burden of proof should be on the prosecution. Because, well, I mean, I think that it should be. There are a lot of people who feel like it's too steep. But if you're going to say that somebody did something that caused someone's death, I want you to have to prove it. Yeah, I agree. So they they get another suspect around this time, um, but this person is also linked to Masaryk. This guy's name is Klaus Faffinger. Yeah, Faffinger. Faffinger. It sounds like a dirty last name. It sounds like it's code for something. Yeah, it does. Probably some kind of weird sex thing. Just like the good place where everything's some kind of weird sex thing. Exactly. Almost all brand new things are a weird sex thing. Uh-huh. So basically, according to this guy's landlord, uh, Faffinger had been behind on his rent. So he too has a financial incentive. And he had also been seen driving a moped with a shovel strapped to the side in the weeks leading up to the kidnapping. Guys. If you're going to do something shady, I don't recommend using a moped to transport things, largely because everyone can see what you're carrying. (laughs) Just going to put that out there. But I think we can agree the fact that the shovel's a little suspicious, especially since it was in the weeks leading up to the kidnapping, and it would probably take a little time to surreptitiously dig this hole in the woods. Mm -hmm. Without anybody else noticing. Yeah, so that doesn't look great. That's a little fishy. So police bring this guy in for questioning. And during a break on the second day of his interrogation, Faffinger suddenly asked the police secretary, what if I know something? So when the police returned to the room, Faffinger told them that in early September 1981, he dug a hole in the forest at the request of Werner Masaryk in exchange for 1,000 Deutschmarks and a color TV. Where's Werner getting 1,000 Deutschmarks? He's already so far behind. I don't know, but other question, how is he getting a color TV back to his place when he has a moped? (laughs) Very, very carefully. There are questions here, people. Questions. Um. However, he also said that he had seen a box in the hole that he dug, so further implicating Werner. But when the police drove Faffinger out to the woods and were like, okay, show us where you dug the hole, he can't. He can't do it, and he doesn't even get close to the right area. You would think if you spent all this time digging that hole, you would have a general idea of where it might be? I would definitely think so. I mean, you're just digging a really suspicious hole with the box in it. I'd probably want to remember where I did that at. Um, So he ends up revoking his confession and saying that he made it up. Uh, Police interrogated Faffinger on at least 10 other occasions and never got anything else from him. 
So by the summer of 1982, the lead detective on this case gets replaced, and in the hopes of reinvigorating the investigation, the new lead detective starts casting a wider net to try to get some leads, because everything they've done so far is not working. So these efforts include the creation and nationwide distribution of 100,000 posters and a segment about the case on a TV show. From what I read, the TV show is kind of like America's Most Wanted or Unsolved Mysteries type deal, Mm -hmm. but the German version of that. So it's much angrier sounding. Probably. And maybe has like interesting reenactments. (laughs) I don't know. We do interesting reenactments, to be fair. We do, and they're weird. They are. (laughs) And I don't love them, but I still watch Unsolved Mysteries because I like it. Um, So in spite of all this effort, nothing substantive developed. I can't say substantive today, so I should (laughs) have deleted that. There you go, guys. I can't talk. Um, So by the end of the decade, the case is just completely cold. They've got nothing. So now we have to jump forward in time to the mid-2000s because that's when we finally have something to add to this story again. So German police begin reinvestigating the evidence from the cold case, hoping that advances in DNA science might get them new leads, which makes sense. We did that here, too, around that time. Start looking for DNA profiles. So among the evidence collected, there were several hairs, um, and investigators managed to obtain DNA profiles from several people. Nothing that I found would say how many people, though. It just said several. So based on these hairs, I think several people were involved? Well, they definitely have hair from several people. I'm assuming several would have to mean at least three, but I don't know. Right, because a couple is two. I would think so. So I don't know how many that is, but they have a few. So in 2007, they're running these profiles and they get a match, but it linked to an impossible suspect. And behind this, I have the word how in really big letters and like five question marks. So it turns out the person uh, that it matched, they said was impossible Because he was uh, involved in, I think, a murder, if I'm remembering right. And he was way too young at the time to have possibly done this. How young is way too young? I don't have his exact age because I couldn't get his name either. But my understanding is that he would have been like a child when the Ursula Herman thing happened. So was he in the house of the person that built it? That's a good question. I don't know. Like, hey, Daddy, what are you building? Can I help you put this box together? I would want 12 cans of Fanta in here if I were going to be stuck in a box. Would explain a lot about the Fanta and the chocolate bar to Mm -hmm. biscuit ratio. (laughs) That bothers me. I can't help it. There is an imbalance here. There is. Why so much Fanta? Water, guys. Water. So... I don't know, like, why they decided to not do anything else with that. I I think we would have to have a lot more information about the actual suspect, which, because other countries don't 
tell you all their details the way that we do here. I don't, I can't give you anything else on that. Mm-hmm. I just know that they said it was impossible. That bugs me though. That it does. Me. Did you investigate his family? I would hope that they checked into it at least because that hair had to be there somehow. Right. But I don't know. So investigators at this point are getting really desperate because they're running out of time to solve this. Um, Ursula's death was not technically a homicide based on the way their laws work. So the charge there was a kidnapping with deadly consequences, which I know seems weird, but the more I thought about it, the more I was like, well, we have like false imprisonment stuff. And I know from other cases I've researched that countries like Australia and New Zealand have like a false imprisonment leading to death charge. So I think this is kind of like that. Okay, that makes sense. Only just like a little more specific because here they're like, it's a kidnapping. But still. So because it's not like a murder, there's a statute of limitations. And for this crime, it's 30 years. And they're running out of time. Oh, yeah. Like rapidly running out of time. Because this is early 2000s at this point. So that's like 25 years. Yeah, well, by the time they got the DNA match, it's 2007. So it's like it's been 26 years already. They have not that much time left to solve this. So they just start focusing really hard again on Werner Masaryk. They put him under surveillance, they tap his phone, and they put bugs in his car. This poor freaking guy. If If he's innocent, yeah, that sucks. That's not, I definitely don't want anyone to put bugs in my car. I sing in there. (laughs) No one should hear that. No one should hear that. So in October, they go ahead and get a saliva sample from him to check his DNA. And it doesn't match any of the profiles they have from the evidence. So his fingerprints don't match. His DNA doesn't match. They can't find anything in the sweep of his house. Or his workshop, because they searched that, too. The one guy who says, I know something, then retracts his statement. What the hell do they have to hold this guy on? But to me, it doesn't seem like anything. No. Based on what I know about the case, nothing but suspicion. So they, they search him again at this point. And now they find an old reel-to-reel style tape recorder that in his house... And this is in, again, it's like 2007 at this point, not 1981 anymore. But they're like, okay, this is our only hope. So they start doing analysis on this recorder, and they determine that it was used to play the traffic jingle in the ransom calls to the Herman house in 1981. How? How? Unless it has some like weird glitch where you hear a certain tick or something. I mean, based on what I read, part of what they were using was because you can hear some sounds in the background of the recording that they said were similar to the buttons being pressed on the reel-to-reel machine. But I'm not a sound analyst, so to me that doesn't seem like it'd be enough. No, because anything that has buttons that records is going to make that sound. I would think, I mean, or a very similar sound, so I'm not sure how you would be able to say definitively that that's the case, but that's what their analysts said. Mm -hmm. 
So on May 28, 2008, Masaryk gets arrested again, and this time he is charged with Ursula's kidnapping and death, and they escort him to Augsburg to stand trial. They also arrest and charge his wife as an accessory. And I have no idea, like, what, if anything, they had on the wife, because nothing I read had anything about that. So I'm guessing probably the same thing. They're just assuming that because she's married to him, he must know. She and must like, know. And maybe because she was his alibi. But I, I, to me, that's thin. So um, in German law, members of a victim's family can formally join with the prosecution and actually be part of the trial. Now, Ursula's parents could not bear to relive the details of their daughter's death. So they were like, we, we're not going to do this. We can't do it. Just emotionally, we can't. So their son, Michael, who Ursula played piano with right before she went missing, he's in his 40s at this point, and he's like, you know what, I'm going to do it. And he becomes a co-plaintiff with the state in the case. So the trial began in February 2009 and concluded in March 2010. That seems like a really long trial to me. It is, yeah. But... I'm Especially not, when you have one freaking piece of evidence. I'm not sure, like, what their court system setup is exactly. So I don't know if that's abnormal for them. It's abnormal for us here. Mm-hmm. A trial normally lasts a few months and it's over. So over a year seems excessive to me. But, again, don't know the German court system that well. Um, but at the end of this trial... The three judges and two jurors were convinced, and they found him guilty. So he gets sentenced to life imprisonment. Meanwhile, his wife ends up getting acquitted due to lack of evidence. She has lack of evidence, but his was solid enough to lock him away. Apparently. So I don't know what the deal is with that. Now, I did check something because when we went through this before, we were like, why the fuck are there three judges and two jurors? Mm -hmm. So it turns out that actually there is no such thing as a jury trial in Germany. Um, The way that they do it, it is basically a tribunal that's made up of either a single professional judge or a combination of professional judges and what they call lay judges. So basically, um, there can be up to five people hearing the case. So they had the maximum number of people here. Um, Three of them were professional judges and the other two would have been lay judges. And what that basically means is an ordinary citizen selected by a committee to serve for a predetermined length of time as a judge at trial. That is very weird. It's a lot different than the way we do it here. Yeah. But yeah, I got that from an article called German Law and the German Legal System. From howtogermany.com. <laughs> How so, to Germany. <laughs> at least I and I remembered to check it at least so that we weren't like, what the fuck this time? It is really weird. It's such a different setup. Because I picture like the three judges up on the bench and then the two jurors over there like, what's going on? I have no idea what that looks like, and I feel like it'd be really uncomfortable to be one of the lay judges. Yeah. I, the, how does that work? Like, do you argue with them? 
I well, don't know. And if you have three professional judges up there, you're already outnumbered. So even if you don't, agree, what are you going to say to the professionals? That's, yeah, kind of what I'm thinking. So I, I don't really know that I totally understand the logic of that system, but that's how it's set up. So um, they did find him guilty, but Ursula's brother, Michael, has never been satisfied with the verdict. When he joined as a co-plaintiff, he requested and received full access to the prosecution's case files, where he found numerous inconsistencies that have bothered him for years now. So aside from the weird shit going on with the DNA profiles that we already talked about, which I can't let go because what the hell's going on there? Um... But there's this whole issue with the fact that the only person who linked Masaryk definitively to this box was that Faffinger guy, and he couldn't even lead the officers to the correct spot where it was buried and then retracted his confession. Mm-hmm. So that didn't work out so hot. Now, apparently the cops at the trial were like, oh, well, he was faking because he didn't want to get caught pretty much. So they pretty much said that he decided he wanted to take it back when they got out there. And so he pretended he couldn't find it. Why? If he's been pressured enough into confessing, take it back and then get interrogated another 10 times, I think you said? It was 10 more times and he never cracked again. Yeah. No, that sounds like bullshit. So there's something going on there. Yeah. Then there's, let's get back to that tape recording because that's weird. So that they didn't was actually a, find the tape, right? Just the recorder? Yeah. Well, they had a tape recording from the phone line from when the police were monitoring it. So they had that recording. Then they were comparing it with trying to make a similar one on that reel-to-reel machine. Right. But they only found the machine. They didn't find an yeah, actual they, they don't have. Yeah. They don't have a recording from him. The recording that they have is from the phone line tap. Thanks. I didn't even think about that. You're right. That could have been confusing. Um, So that was a huge issue for Michael because he actually has a background in music. So he knows a decent amount about sound engineering. So he grappled with the idea of definitively linking this tape recorder to those calls the way that they did at trial. Now I'm going to go ahead and quote from the Rice article here because I'm not that great with the technical aspects of this and I don't want to mess it up. So Quote, even if the reel-to-reel device had been used to record the jingle from the radio as the prosecution alleged, the kidnappers would still have had to transfer that recording to a second, more portable device since the calls to the Herman House were made from payphones. Oh, yeah, because they traced the calls. Yep. But nobody ever witnessed who was in the payphones? Apparently not. And then... To continue, it says the acoustic environments in both the phone booth and at the kidnapper's home would have influenced what the police eventually heard and recorded at the other end of the phone line. Mm -hmm. So that quote, I feel like, is hugely crucial here because they're right. The acoustic environment of the phone booth would be in the background of the actual recording they have because that's where it's getting played. And then you have to also take into account where was it originally recorded at. And they don't even know at this point. Mm -hmm. They don't know. So how could they say that this matches 
their attempts to try to reproduce the recording with this machine when they don't have, like, most of the pieces they would need to account for. Did he bring that up at the trial? Oh, he tried. So Michael tried to bring this to light by writing a letter that was read out in court in which he detailed his issues with the audio evidence, but it didn't change the outcome of the trial. Oh, and the prosecution was pissed that he did that. Oh, I bet, because he's supposed to be on their side. Yeah. But you want to get the right person. You don't want to put somebody innocent behind bars. That's just what for the his sake of attitude justice. is. Yeah, his attitude is he wants to punish who actually did it. So for him, he's like, we have to, we have to talk about this problem, but it didn't change anything. So um, since then, another audio expert named Burned Hader has conducted year, like a year, a full year of tests repeatedly trying to reproduce the prosecution audio experts' findings that definitively linked this machine to those calls. He couldn't do it. He took a year to do it. They had fewer than four years to get this guy, get the evidence, and then convict it. Like put him, they put him through a year-long trial. He repeatedly tried to test this over and over again. And anybody who knows anything about any kind of scientific experiment knows that if you can't reproduce the results, then the first result can't be trusted. Mm -hmm. You have to be able to reproduce it. They can't. So then a German academic named Barbara Zeipser gets involved in the case. So she uses her skills as a linguistic profiler to analyze the ransom notes that they got at the house. And she compared them to known samples of writing by Masaryk. So what she's looking at specifically here is word choice and writing style. This is not a handwriting thing because these letters were actually cutouts. They're like that old joke of a ransom note where you uh-huh. cut letters out of other stuff and paste it together. So this is not a handwriting thing. It's a word choice thing. That's something like a teenager would do. To me, it sounds like it. I mean, you would be like, everybody does this. You see it in a movie and you're like, hey, that's how ransom notes are made because your tiny little brain is thinking that. Absolutely. So she does this, this analysis, and she concluded that the person who wrote the ransom letters was well-educated and a native speaker of German who was attempting to pass as a foreigner by writing in broken German. So it's someone, who, she says, who was pretending not to know the language that well, but who didn't do as good of a job faking it as they thought they did. She does not believe it's possible for Masaryk to have been the author of these notes based on the samples that she had that were definitely his. Furthermore, one of those ransom notes had an impression on the paper itself. So like from another piece of paper being on top of it Mm -hmm. and someone writing on that. So when they analyzed that impression, it turned out to be a probability tree the type of thing likely to be written in a school notebook by a teenager. So literally, either a teenager did this, or the kidnapper, like, took a teenager's notebook and, like, ripped a page out of their math notes and used it to make a ransom letter. It almost makes sense that a teenager would do it, though. If you look at the evidence, so they fill the box with 21 fucking books, and a shit ton of candy and soda. That's something a kid would do. 
because they don't care. They're not thinking, I need healthy food. Yeah. They don't understand the mail system. They're calling from pay phones and requesting some weird ass shit, like the car. And then they're using paper that they pulled from a notebook, a high school notebook. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff there that would make a lot more sense if someone immature had done it. Like, especially all that soda compared to water. And not realizing that you need to circulate air. Yes. Yeah. And who's she going to trust? She's probably going to listen to other kids. It's a good point. Because if you're a kid and you see someone who you either know or you, like, know their siblings, Mm -hmm. probably going to talk to them. Well, and what kind of genius says, here's my ransom note. I want you to deliver it. But I'm not going to tell you where. That's the kind of dumbass thing that a teenager would forget. So it's definitely something to think about and have a little bit more that suggests you might be on the right track. So inside those books that were in there, there were some comics, and one of them features a character who drives a Fiat 600, the same type of car the kidnappers told Mr. Herman to drive to deliver the ransom. And no grown-up is going to be reading through these comics. Unlikely, anyway, unless they're... I read comics, but... I'm also wouldn't be like, get an Italian car in Germany. Right. You wouldn't say, get me the Italian car, and then I'm going to put that little linking piece of evidence in the box with the person that was in it. You would think you'd be smart enough not to do that. Yeah. (laughs) Hopefully. People do dumb things, though. So in late 2018, Michael actually made an additional attempt to get the legal system to re-examine this case. So he submitted a lengthy dossier of evidence that had not been considered at the original trial to try to get the case reopened. That August, after reviewing all of those files, the prosecutor's office, sorry, prosecutor's office (laughs) declined to do any further investigating in the case, essentially declined declaring the matter closed and that's where it stands he's still in jail that is so shitty and that's what you were saying earlier about once you've been convicted you have this ridiculous hill to climb to say hey this was wrong and i think the other thing adding to that massive hill here is we're way past the statute of limitations at this point So if they do decide to reopen the case and he would end up getting let out, they're not going to be able to convict anybody else for this legally at this point. So it would literally be like a complete loss for them to do that. And I'm not saying that like all of that, like I'm not saying prosecutors are crooked or anything, but I think we all know that if you have someone in jail for something, especially if it involves a child's death, it doesn't really look good for that person, the only person you have to then get out and you can't do anything else. Like it, it just looks really bad. I don't understand how that's, I couldn't do that job. I couldn't feel like I put somebody away that didn't belong there. I couldn't do it either. I mean, somebody definitely has to, but I would, I like would naively like to think that whoever's in that position would want the right person to be behind bars. Right. But I know that that's not always how it works out as a realist. I mean, when you, what do you, what do you solve when you do something like that? When you put the wrong person, it just doesn't sound like he did it. If he did do it or was involved, I can't say. But they definitely, in my opinion, don't have 
anywhere near enough evidence for him to be locked up like this. I would agree. Is it a huge tragedy that this poor little girl's life was taken? Absolutely. That's horrible. And I do think someone should pay for it, but it has to be the right person putting someone who you can't even prove did it away for it. It's just making another injustice. Yeah. So that's the really upsetting story of the girl in the box. That is really sad. Sounds like a story from the TV show Bones. Yeah. It does sound like fiction, honestly. It does. The sad fact that her brother is the only one who's still, like, trying to find out what really happened is deeply upsetting. Like, in the end of that Rice article, um, the reporter had actually interviewed Michael again, like, prior to the article coming out, and he said that at the time of the trial, he thought maybe there was, like, a 50% chance that Masaryk was responsible in all the years since, like, everything else that he's continued to find out from all the further tests they've done, he now only thinks it's a 1% chance. They just wanted to pin it on him. They wanted someone to go to jail for it. That's so sad. That's sad all the way around. Everything. That's sad for her family. That's sad for his family. Yeah. And I think you're right. There's a lot of stuff that, to me, seems like someone younger and, like, not as familiar with, like, actual real-world situations Mm -hmm. planned this because the plan's okay in theory, but they failed to take into account a bunch of things that I would think an older person would probably know better. Than right. Unless maybe they're a little simple-minded. And yet the person who supposedly wrote those notes is actually intelligent. Yes, that's true. That's a good point. So I think that speak. I mean, we know it's more than one person, so it's possible the person who wrote the ransom notes not the same person that made the ventilation system Mm -hmm. or like decided to put all the Fanta in the box. I'm sorry. I can't let go of the Fanta. (laughs) Fucking Fanta. Fanta and candy bars. But it's like, if you were an adult planning this with, I think it would have to be an exceptionally bright younger person that, that did this in my thinking and he was 31 then to me that's too old to have made some of these mistakes i would agree it's a little uh, it seems unlikely and a mechanic doesn't know that you need to circulate air right i would think you would know that maybe i'm giving mechanics too much credit but i don't think i am Mm -mm. so it's really upsetting i think to me this isn't solved no and it probably never will be It doesn't sound like they have any interest in trying to really solve it. The one small bright spot in this is that they did find Ursula. They did. She wasn't missing forever. The family got to have a burial and the family got to grieve. The sad thing is they never got answers. There are so many people that don't even get that, though. That's true. We don't live in a world that lends itself to satisfying endings. Today, we both posted the story of Ashley Morin. Yes, we did. Which is something I think our listeners should, if you don't listen to that story, go and do a little research on what's going on with her. She went missing 
July 10th of 2018? Yeah, she went missing July 10th of 2018 and her family, well, she was reported missing that day. I think she might have been missing a little bit longer than that. Actually, she was, that was the last time she was seen, was 9.30 p.m. on July 10th of 2018. Okay. And there was a white van that was seen near her at the time. She wasn't reported missing for like another eight days because her family didn't, I guess it wasn't that unusual for her. Well, it, here's the thing about um, indigenous communities in Canada that I learned when we researched Highway of Tears. Mm-hmm. Because of how rural those are and how isolated they are, it's super common for you to not know where people are for a little while, especially if you um, don't have enough money to own your own vehicle, which a lot of people don't, and there's not a reliable bus system in most of those areas, which means a lot of times you're hitching rides with people. So it's actually not that uncommon out in those rural places for people to not see or hear from you for a couple of days. Mm -hmm. And honestly, a lot of times they don't think anything of, of it. You assume that they're wherever they said they were going and that you'll hear from them in a day or two and you don't. Mm -hmm. Happens all the time. So Ashley was 31 when she went missing. It was two years ago. She was five foot two, although I think I've seen a few reports that she might have been five foot one. So she's pretty short, 110 pounds. She had dark brown to blackish hair. And she she went missing from North Battleford and that's Saskatchewan. So that's in Canada. For those of you who aren't familiar with where Saskatchewan is, she was wearing gray sweatpants, black t-shirt with white writing, a black hat, and sunglasses. So I will post information in the show notes, which I will sh- Ashley has, will share it on how to call the tip line if you have any information on her whereabouts. Her family's been waiting two years. Ursula got to go home. Let's bring Ashley home. Let's do it. I mean... They deserve to have at least a chance to say goodbye to her, mm-hmm. even if it ends up not being a satisfying resolution in terms of the legal system. I think probably the most upsetting thing about this is that based on the way criminal investigations work in Canada, they won't share like much of any information about any case that's technically considered active. Almost and nothing. And active fits like a wide variety of actual statuses for these cases. Mm-hmm. So it's really hard to get any information. Even the family can cannot get any information because that's the way their system is set up. So let's, if you know anything, I can't stress enough how important it is for you to contact Crime Stoppers and give that information to them so that they can find Ashley and bring her home to her family. The Saskatchewan Crime Stoppers phone number is 1-800-222-TIPS. So that's 8477. And we'll put that one in the notes also. So hopefully bringing some attention to her case can help close that for her family. I hope so. Nobody deserves to wait years to find out where their child is. Yeah. Nobody. Well, thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for sharing your story. Not, uh, I'm used to dark and paranormal, but not that kind of dark. Yeah, I know. A lot of the stories that we dig into are stories that don't have, 
a happy ending or even a satisfying one. Mm -hmm. But I think we owe the victims and we owe the families of those victims an honest attempt at the truth. Even if that doesn't result in a conviction, we need to know who's responsible. Well, I think that was a really good case for you to pick for our Germany episode. Yeah, there's a lot going on. We learned a lot about the German legal system. I think this is an, that's another case where if you know anything, somebody has to know something. Somebody at some point in the past 30, almost 40 years has said something. They've opened their mouth. And honestly, at this point, if the legal system doesn't want to do anything with that information, I bet her brother would still really like to know. So if you try to contact someone in their legal system and they don't want your information, like I would strongly suggest trying to find a way to contact the family, specifically Michael, because I know that even if nobody else out there is still looking for the truth, he wants it, even if it's not a truth that ends up being pursuable by justice at this point, he wants an answer. Yeah. And if uh, Masaryk didn't do it, then come forward and say something and get that man out of jail. Something needs to be done. Well, thank you very much for this tonight. Thank you for having me. Let's do our social media. So you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Drink Drunk Dead. It's pretty simple. And you can also email us at drinkdrunkdeadpodcast at gmail.com. So that's if you have stories that you want to share suggestions for how we can better our content if you have ideas for episodes you can hit us up okay and we are on instagram facebook and twitter um unfortunately our handles are not nice and tidy like (laughs) emily's um but our instagram is studying scarlet podcast our uh facebook is studying scarlet And our Twitter is at study scarlet pod because they are stingy with their characters. They are. (laughs) Um, But if you want to email us, um, please send an email to studying scarlet podcast at gmail.com. We actually take uh, listener suggestions for episode topics. So you're welcome to hit us up with those. Or if you just have suggestions for things that you would like to see or hear us do differently, anything we love hearing from listeners. And I highly suggest that you go and give Studying Scarlet a listen, especially episode 14. Because <laughs> that's, that's just a good one. It's yeah, a bad one, but it's a good one. It's a rough ride, but it's, it is dark, it's a it's really dark. interesting story that more people should know. Yes. So if, if you're listening to this on our feed, I strongly encourage you to check out Drink Drunk Dead. They have new episodes every Sunday. Mm-hmm. Um, that come out. You definitely want to subscribe to them. Sometimes they have cool bonus material that comes out, and the only way to know that is to subscribe. And definitely follow both of us on Twitter if you like psych gifts, because <laughs> otherwise you're really missing out and you don't even know. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on tonight. Oh, thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. Shall we raise a toast to our ghosts? <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to do this. I'm just going to say clink. Clink. (laughs) That'll work. (laughs) 